Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited today. We have a very special guest for you, Chris Stein. He's from Blondie. You know that band, right? I've heard of them. Incredible. And he's going to be coming on and talking about all things Blondie. But first, let's get to this. I have to say I'm deeply disappointed in what the last two years have shown. In my judgment, the Department of Justice has been politicized to the greatest extent I've ever seen in this country. And it has done a discredit to the Department of Justice, to the FBI, and to the administration of law in this country. I also want to at least respond to your characterization of the department, which sure. I vigorously disagree with. I believe the men and women of the department pursue their work every single day in a nonpartisan and an appropriate General way. General Garland, when rioters descended at the homes of six Supreme Court justices, night after night after night, you did nothing. Have you brought a single case against any of these protesters threatening the judgment justices under 18 U.S.C. Section 1507? Have you brought even one? Senator, you asked me whether I sat on my hands, and quite the opposite. I sent hey, 70 United States Marshals. I mean, why are you unwilling to say no? The answer is no. You know it's no. I know it's no. Everyone in this in this hearing room knows it's no. You're not willing to answer a question. When you issued uh, your directive, when you directed your criminal divisions and your counterterrorism divisions to, um, to investigate parents who were angry at school boards. I did not do that. I did not issue any memorandum directing the investigation of parents who were concerned about their children. The memorandum was aimed at violence and threats of violence against a whole host of school personnel. It was not aimed at parents making complaints to their school board. Attorney General, are you cultivating sources and spies in Latin mass parishes and other Catholic parishes around the country? No, the Justice Department does not do that. How many informants do you have in Catholic churches across America? I don't know, and I don't believe we have any informants aimed at Catholic churches. Does your department have a problem with anti-Catholic bias? And, uh, our department um, is, uh, 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 protects all religions um, and all ideologies. It does not have uh, any uh, bias against any religion of any kind. Decisions about how to go about this were made on the ground by FBI agents. So you're saying you don't know? I'm, I'm saying what I just said. That Which is that you're abdicating responsibility? I'm not abdicating responsibility. Then give me the answer. Is Do you think, in your opinion, you are the Attorney General of the United States. You are in charge of the Justice Department. And yes, sir, you are responsible. Yeah. So give me an answer. We're supposed to hate long, long guns and assault-style weapons. You're happy to deploy them against Catholics and innocent children. That brings us to the first of our two big things for this week. That was Merrick Garland, who went before the Senate Judiciary committee this week. I think it was Wednesday. The committee is controlled by Democrats, but as you heard, it was hijacked by people like Ted Cruz and John Kennedy. Not that John Kennedy, but this John Kennedy. And Josh Hawley. And I gotta say, man, like, the fucking nerve of these people. Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley. You know, when he's like, yeah, you're the attorney general. So, well, you know what, Hawley? You're a U.S. senator and you went out and fucking fist bumped insurrectionists right? You supported insurrectionists. So these are people that literally are, have been kissing Donald Trump's ass, the, the, the traitor in chief, kissing his ass 
for years now still support him, still want him to be their nominee. Yet, yes, this week they spent four hours grilling Merrick Garland about Hunter Biden, about Taylor Swift tickets, about the persecution of Catholics. I mean, come on, this was insane. I mean, I think we need to come up with an award for performance because that was some great, that was some great acting. Well, but it, it wasn't great acting. That's the, that's the thing. Was I mean, it, horrible was, it was pretend, it was just all pretend. It's such performative nonsense that I, it's hard to even listen to without laughing, especially Josh Hawley, which all I can think about is him running out of the Capitol. Yeah. Yeah. The big, brave, tough guy who was seen running like a roadrunner for his life. Matt, friend, if you're listening, uh, you got to do like a whole Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Kennedy thing. And Kennedy, that voice. It's like Richard Pryor used to say, like when he was down south, like the, that accent makes the hair on the back of my neck. Just but it's wrong. also pretend he's totally Ivy League educated and he's pretending to be bumfuck idiot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll tell you. Uh, turn the general. So that was kind of a sham and it was a shame and the disrespect, the way they talked to this guy. You know, I mean, when you think about Merrick Garland from a, from a standpoint of professionalism versus, I mean, the whole notion of, you know, let's investigate the weaponization of the Department of Justice, whatever. It's just, all this is, is just like a freaking smokescreen to distract voters from, A, the fact that we almost lost our democracy, and B, they're so corrupt in their own party, and uh, and their constituents are brainwashed. Like Taylor Swift tickets. That's, this is literally what taxpayers need to be spending money on to grill Merrick Garland on, on Taylor Swift tickets. Just a funny aside, in today's Wall Street Journal, there's a piece about Merrick Garland being a major Swifty. He listens to her all the time because of his two daughters. Seriously? Yes. There you go. Taylor Swift, if you're listening to this podcast, which I know you are, we're desperate, desperate to have you on. Yeah, you need to come on and talk about this whole Merrick Garland thing. Yep. So the second big thing of the week, we learned that was kind of a feud between the Department of Justice and the FBI over the Mar-a-Lago raid last summer. Now, apparently there's typically friction between the agents and the prosecutors and this kind of a thing. But this, we, we learned from, from texts and transcripts, whatever that, this went so far beyond that to the point where it supports the, the, the theory that there is a true method to Donald Trump's madness in terms of intimidation and instilling fear so that people who ultimately are in control of the mechanisms to hold him accountable may choose not to because they're afraid, afraid for their careers, afraid for their lives, afraid for public perception and reputation and legacy. And that's what apparently happened here where the FBI was literally considering giving him a pass because they were just afraid. The agents were saying, like, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. I'm afraid. And this is the essence of Trump's entire strategy. This is what he does. He doesn't really argue about the past or the present in terms of trying to make people afraid. What he does is he, he plans for the next thing so that the next time you have to look at him, you're afraid because of what he did last time. And it's just, I don't know, it makes you wonder, like, is, is, is he going to prevail or... Or like a, a guy like Alec Murdoch, is, is, is it finally going to catch up to him? I don't know. The jury is still out because you look at the Murdoch family and you realize that this was a powerful 
family that controlled this town this for a hundred years. But eventually they did something bad. He did something bad and he, and he, and he's going to pay the price. Maybe it's the same with Trump. Maybe all the years that Trump got away with everything. Maybe this is, this is the swan song. This is where he, how and where he goes to, to prison. No, we hope so. I mean, he basically intimidated the FBI completely. And this goes back to January 6th. The GAO just released a report showing that the FBI had enormous amounts of information about January 6th and did absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, he, po he poisons the electorate. So if you come after, if you come after me and you have amount of evidence and it's clear that I committed a crime, but all I say to you is you're coming after me because, you know, you hate people named Andy. And, and every day you hate people named Andy and you're only doing this because you hate people named Andy. And over and over and over and over again, it, he turns the tables on them so that they become afraid that they're going to be accused of doing what he's accused them of. So he, he creates this entire narrative and it works. He's a great dictator. He's a dictator. He's a master projector, probably a, mas a great masturbator. But it's just, you know, I hope what happens to him is, is what we're seeing with Alec Murdoch, that, that there is a price to ultimately pay be paid. All right, let's get to our winners and losers. Jen. My winner, better late than never, Eli Lilly, for cutting insulin costs by 70% and capping patient insulin out-of-pocket costs to $35 or less per month. My loser, Iranian girls. Hundreds of schoolgirls across the country have been poisoned in what may be deliberate attacks designed to prevent girls from seeking an education. My loser this week is an easy one. It's cartoonist Scott Adams, who uh, encouraged segregation in a racist YouTube rant. And of course, Elon Musk came out in supporting him because, well, it's Elon Musk. My winner this week, I'm going to go with a different species, is the Eurasian eagle owl, who's escaped from the Central Park Zoo nearly a month ago and has become one of the most inspiring characters in New York with his ability to adapt and hunt, even though he spent nearly his entire life in a zoo. Interesting. My winner is Merrick Garland, who demonstrated patriotism, professionalism, and the patience of Job at the judiciary hearing. My loser, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who blamed Biden for the fentanyl deaths of a Michigan mother's two sons, who actually died in 2020 under Trump. Uh, so when challenged by CNN, her spokesperson barked, do you think they give a fuck about your bullshit fact-checking? <laughs> just just think about that. No. no. They're angry because they got caught in a lie. That's fantastic. It is fantastic. All right, before we get to this week's rant, let's, uh, let's play this clip. There's just some, some talk in China that, that maybe the transparency isn't everything that it's, it's going to be. Do you trust that we're going to know everything we need to know from China? I do. I do. I have a great relationship with President Xi. We're working very closely with China and other countries, and we think it's going to have a very good ending for us. We are coordinating with the Chinese government and working closely together. We're working with them. You know, we just sent some of our best people over there. We're working with China, just so you know, and other countries very, very closely so it doesn't get out of hand. Are the words about a pandemic at this point? No, we're not at all. And uh, we're, we have it totally under control. It's one person. I just want to get to the rant, but I just want to say to all you Republicans, are we up to, are we still at, so we stuck eight. at eight. We have eight Republicans listening to this podcast now. That was, that's your guy. That's your guy saying we got China under control. 
We have the pandemic. The pandemic? What the pandemic schmandemic? What do you wait? It's one person. Maybe give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he meant one million because that's actually how many people died of COVID. But for anyone sitting here today saying, oh, it's unfair that Trump's blamed for COVID and he did nothing. Just listen to that clip, okay? We're not worried at all about the pandemic. It's just one person. Okay. Well, that kind of dovetails into the rant, which is about Republican hypocrisy, which right now is raging out of control. And it's quite dangerous. The latest example of this was the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing Wednesday that you just heard some parts of, where several rude, disrespectful, fake-ass patriots like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley performed worse than actors in an Oklahoma dinner theater. The GOP is not the party of faith, of God and religion, of good Christian values. It's the party that mocks disabled people and cages kids and controls women's bodies and forces 11-year-olds to carry rapist babies. That is cruel and inhumane to refugees, LGBTQ, minorities, and those in need. The GOP is not the party of law and order. It's the party that beats the shit out of cops, wants to defend, defund the FBI, and worships its mob boss, Donald Trump, who never met a law he didn't like to break. The GOP is not the Patriot Party. It's, the party, it's not the party of national defense. It's the party of deadly insurrection one that attempts to overturn free and fair elections and overthrow the government, a party that will once again nominate a dangerous democracy-raping dictator wannabe who blew Putin, Putin on stage at Helsinki, had a love affair with Kim Jong-un, and enables and empowers America's enemies and alienates our allies like Ukraine. That's your Republican Party, corrupt, treasonous, and broken as fuck. All right, it's time to bring out Chris Stein. He is the co-founder, songwriter, and guitarist of the iconic punk band Blondie. He's also an accomplished photographer and author. Chris, welcome into the back room. Thanks, Andy. I'm just going to say up front, uh, for full disclosure, I'm a huge fan. My 70s, I was like 17 years old when you guys first hit. And Thanks for your it, support. It was huge in my yeah. life. And like I think most young men, I was infatuated with Debbie Harry and had the hugest crush and I still do. So I'm not, I'm going to be shameless here and tell you that I'm a fanboy and, you know, I'm not embarrassed about that. So well, we, we appreciate the support, as I always say. And so uh, first thing I want to ask you as someone who is now 60, I'm 63 and dealing with oh, my own. 73. Okay, I got yeah. 10 years on you. So how, how, yeah. are, how are you doing these days? What's health-wise? Oh, okay. cool? I'm older. You know, I mean, I'm slowing down. I got a bunch of bullshit. But, uh, you know, I have heart pig and I had to get radiation for right prostate and all that crap, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's all okay. You know, stabilize the prostate stuff on my levels are almost zero so the old, the old prostate jesus yeah. once it's like men like once you hit a certain age it's like that that word no, it, seems, it seems inevitable that's what my wife said everybody's gonna get it yeah but you have a great head of hair yeah no i'm yes i maintain my grandfather had this hair same hair my two mine but too in fact my grandfather literally when he was like 85 years old before he died literally had like you like you guys went to the same barber so I think yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Well, I just haven't been out much, so I need a haircut. <laughs> but he, uh, my maternal grandfather, who actually I never met, I was close to my 
maternal grandmother, but uh, uh, him, I don't know, he, he went before I was born. It's so funny. There are people that, you know, like, like my maternal grandfather had a big head of hair. Like I have no issues with hair and probably never will. You, you don't. But uh, then you have like these friends you've known who like went bald at 25 and it's just like, yeah, look yeah. at the drawer, right? No, I had a buddy who like when we were all like teenagers, you know, whatever, 14, 15, he looked like he was 40. <laughs> but then it, he, it all caught up to him. And I think he looks younger now than he did back then. It's all relative. And some people, I, you know, I, I always think that there are some people that look great bald because they have a great shaped head. I always think yeah, like I, I wouldn't look, I wouldn't look good bald. I, Do you ever think about I like what you would look, look, look like it? Yeah, of bald? course. Sure. Everybody does. I know I never did it. So I don't know. Do you, do you, do you think you have a good shaped head for baldness? I have no idea. I can't tell. I don't know. Well, thankfully so it's I, not a problem you have to worry about much. Yeah. It's at the moment. Tell me about when you, you know, one of the things we love to do here is go back in time and peel away the, the, the onion layers and try to find out what people were like as kids. Well, you were a, a Jewish kid growing up in Brooklyn. Were you... Yes, but parents weren't practicing. They were Reds. Right. So they were, you know, they, I didn't wasn't subjected to uh, any of the organized religious aspects of Judaism. Luckily, so are they reading you Karl Marx at night at bedtime, or no? I mean, they, I I don't you know I don't really know what their attraction to that was. Very famously, the FBI came to my house when I was a baby, and my old man later told me he gave them names of a dead guy, and they went away <laughs> happy. And uh, but uh, I don't you know they weren't. I wish I had pressed them more about that stuff, but they they weren't pursuing it by the time I was around. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the three people in this studio right now, including myself and my uh, engineer and producer and associate producer, we're, we're three Jews and we, I don't think there's a, a practicing Jew among us, right? Is it fair to say that? But, you know, atheism is the fastest growing religion, isn't it? What, I suppose. I know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I consider myself an animist. You know, I kind of like believe in like the force, mm -hmm. maybe. You know, everything has this life energy mm -hmm. that intermingled amongst the universe. So you think there's something there, somewhere, responsible for something, but you don't quite know. Respon I, I think responsible is, no, I don't know if there's anything directing everything beyond itself. You know, it's mm -hmm. just the patterns of energy. Mm-hmm. I'm an, you know, I'm an atheist with a capital A, but every once in a while I walk outside and I look around, and I see cars and planes and people, and I'm like, how the fuck did all this happen? Like, do you ever think that? Do you ever like just stop and look well, and go? Sure. Frequently. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> it's fascinating when you stop and think about it. Everything's amazing on all levels. It's just, you know, it's, I, if anything, I learned from psychedelics. It was that stuff. <laughs> well, we're gonna talk about. You're dabbling in a little while if you're okay with that. But so when you were a kid, did you were you musical as a kid? I got a guitar. Yeah, I mean, I uh, you know I'm writing a memoir. I'm just closing in on. It. I just have turned it over. Oh, great. It's going into the editing phase. My parent. I remember my parents playing Lead Belly when I was very little because the editor said, "What did you play? Our parents listen to. You can put that in there." So 
I, I, I got to put that in there. And then I just got, you know, I was born like right in 1950. Mm -hmm. So I just re reflect all the musical trends that my generation was subject to. And that, when, so when did you get your first guitar? 12, when I was, 1962, when I was 12. Mm -hmm. And if you can just, what were the circumstances, like, were you dying to get a guitar or did your parents say, hey, yeah, you should I, play an instrument, you know? I saw, you know, some electric guitars out in the world and I thought they were very exotic and sexy and um, was drawn to them, just in, like, in the neighborhood and stuff. It was pre the Beatles or any of that mm. stuff, you know? So, um, I just liked it. I had probably, you know, I was a big Flatten Scruggs fan mm -hmm. early on. I picked up from the Beverly Hillbillies, but I went on to explore who they were, mm -hmm. um, all that stuff. And then, you know, in the folk music scene, everything, all, all that stuff was an influence. And when you picked up a guitar, was it something that just became like, like when you, the minute you touched well, it, you knew this was your instrument? Like it was easy to play, no, not, chord progression, just, all that. No, it wasn't, easy. it wasn't easy to play because I didn't have any uh, guidance whatsoever. So I just sat there and fooled around for a year. I the, When I first picked up the guitar, I was really surprised that you pressed the strings down to get different notes. I don't know what I thought, that it only had six notes, but it was a revelation that there were the, the fret. Mm-hmm string relationship was there strings are important in the guitar yes. i play the drums and it's very primal but i recently yeah. started taking guitar lessons and the reason i asked the question is because i do believe that some people's dexterity their fingers their ability like i it's almost impossible for me to do a barcode because my hand won't like i'm having a lot of trouble with it and there are people that pick up a guitar yeah. and it's just it's like magic, like their fingers just work. It works. And I was curious if that was the way it was for you. I've tried, you know, and now it's just so second nature. It's weird. I mean, I don't really shred or do any of that fast, super fast, crazy stuff, but just it's hard to, the relationship with the instrument is just what it is. It's just becomes an extension. Mm. And did you ever take lessons when you first started playing, or you just oh, taught yourself? Playing along with records. That's crazy. When I, when I first learned to play House of the Rising Sun, that was a breakthrough moment. All self-taught. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it took a couple of years before I was, mm -hmm. I, would, I would be happy just to sit there and do it. Mm -hmm. Did you just listen to music over and over and over and over again? Yeah. And that's how you, like... I remember listening to Howard Stern interview Bruce Springsteen. The Springsteen was saying how he just listened to records. He slowed them down, actually. He slowed them yeah. down so he can understand the guitar parts, and that's how he learned how to play. I remember necessarily slowing the stuff down, but I still, to this day, will, will listen to the same song many times over and over if I'm if it's something that I, catches me. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're also a... a Really accomplished photographer. And by the way, Bob Gruen says hi. Uh, he was He's uh, our current yeah, episode this week. Fascinating uh, guy. Yeah, he, he's great. He's right around the block. Yeah, I was just at his place the other day uh, with him and his wife, Elizabeth. And, and uh, incredible photographer, incredible stories. But you are incredible as well. Was that something as a child you 
when did photography become important to you or or an interest in your in your life? I was always I was always fooling around with little like brownie cameras when I was a kid. Uh, then I was influenced by a buddy of mine who was a really great photographer, this guy, Dennis McGuire, who's not well known, but he was a terrific photographer. He used to shoot New York Times ads and all kinds of stuff. He was a big influence and seeing blow up was a big influence mm. on every generation that made everybody wanted to be photographers. I was always had it. I probably started around 68 seriously with an actual 35 millimeter camera, but my mom was a painter also. So mm. it came from the environment. She was a good painter. Mm -hmm. And so you went to SVA school of visual arts. Yeah, uh, it was great. All the way back then, it was great. And what was, so like, what was your primary focus when you were in school? Was it photography? I, I was, and no, I was in fine arts, but it was, that was kind of the height of the conceptual arts period. So I found that much more of a romantic, I found that stuff a little dry. I, so I just kept gravitating more and more into photography. Mm -hmm. But and I had a great time. Visual arts was fantastic. I had a good time. And at the same time you were there, were you also, was there like a parallel track of music and bands? Like were you in bands like when you were in college? Yeah, I was always, I was always, well, I was always screwing around with bands and my friends and me from Brooklyn were always jamming. That was ongoing. Uh, famously, we opened for the Velvet Underground in mm -hmm. 1907. That was with the first, first Crow on the Moon, is that the... I don't even know if that that was a title that was floating around. I don't uh -huh. know if that configuration was necessarily the Velvet Underground experience that we had. Mm -hmm. But a buddy of mine worked for Andy, Jelly Freeman, who's um, I've known for 50, uh, 50 plus years. Uh, he decided he really liked Andy when he was 13. And he put on a suit and he went to the factory and asked Andy to to interview him for his school newspaper and Andy liked him. So they gave him a job as gopher and, you know, odd jobs around there. And he used to go to Andy's house and wake him up. And he just showed up at my house in Brooklyn one day and said, listen, the opening act for the Velvets didn't make it. Do you guys want to do it? So we all got in the subway. We went uptown, I guess, I don't know if it's the East or West seventies, this place called the gymnasium. Mm -hmm. And the set with the Velvets, which was fantastic experience. And were around. you were you how aware of uh, the Velvet? Oh, I knew who they were. Yeah, I totally had. We we all had the record by then. I mean, the record was everybody was enamored of. The, the Velvet Underground to me is, uh, and maybe it's kind of not ironic that they're named the Velvet Underground, but to me, like one of the most underappreciated bands ever in music. Uh, I mean, well, there's a hardcore of music people and fans who love them, but I don't know, just uh, seems like they should have been a bigger thing than what they were. I mean, I think some of their music is incredible. What Goes On to me is one of the best songs ever made. Sure. I mean, I've been waiting for my man is like the ultimate rock and roll yeah. song. I always try to think of what the ultimate rock and roll song is, you know, and it's kind of like, Louie Louie, Waiting for My Man, mm -hmm. a couple of, you know. Uh, it's even rock and roll. Different. Like, you know, it's just there's some of their songs, they're like rival Zeppelin and any like these mega famous, but they never had that kind it's of. Kind of it's kind of in the context of all the angst and 
drug references and all that stuff that probably is off-putting to the mainstream. Also, the associations with Andy and the art world. Mm, interesting. You know, it's like it's like Giger, you know, who we've worked with, H.R. Giger, who's an incredible, influential artist, has never really been accepted. He's, he's, he doesn't have anything in the MoMA, which is mind-boggling to me, and I think it's the Hollywood Association a little bit, and the fact that people all get biomechanical tattoos, mm. maybe they consider it lowbrow or something. I don't know. It's just it's beyond me. And maybe the same for the Velvets a little bit. People consider it too fringe, you know? Mm. It's not as yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense on some level. But then again, you just listen to the music. Oh, I like don't know. It's unbelievable. Like, you dissect every part of certain songs, and it's just so con well-constructed and, and just fantastic music and lyrics and importance. I mean, but, but it's, it's like Walk on the Wild Side, the song that everybody knows from Lou. Yeah, well, that's I mean, right. That's the, that's the hit. Like, you know, they weren't, I guess they weren't a hit band. Like they didn't make numbers. Yeah. They didn't make hits. They made oh, music. They, that's you know. what's great about it is that they didn't care. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, of, of drugs, when I was a kid, you know, you famously, or you've had your uh, relationship with, uh, with uh, the, narc Everything. the narcotics, but uh, did that start at an early age or was that something that came yeah, later on? We were right there in the sixties counterculture. Mm -hmm. So, we were just, I was, I went to, I first smoked pot at the Newport Folk Festival in 1966. Mm -hmm. The first time I went there, which was the year after. Dylan, right. At the fiasco, by the, by, by the next year, by 66, that was all being embraced. There was no resistance to the electronic music scene. You know, it's interesting because I, I literally just, talked with Bob uh, Bob Gruen about all of this because he was at the 65 uh, Newport Festival. Uh, what do you think, yeah. as someone who's made a career playing electric guitar, like, what do you think was the major resistance in 65? Like, what freaked people out so much about Dylan? The folky people, the folky people just saw themselves as some kind of purists. Again, they, they saw it as lowbrow, the rock and roll world, I think, you know, that they were more poetic and, and on a higher plane. And all that, whatever, than whoever was in Elvis or something. You know, I, I'm not sure. But what, I mean, how was. do you listen to like a Dylan doing like a Rolling Stone and not think it's that's amazing? Like, yeah, I know, but that, isn't that much later? That's several years later. But uh, isn't that what he performed at 65? Isn't that what people freaked out with when he played like a Rolling Stone? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's possible. Maybe, I, maybe I'm getting the. Dates wrong. Or even anything electric that he did at well, 65. Like, how do you listen to that and go, wow, my God, this is not, you know, it would be like listening to Sgt. Pepper and going, wait a second, I, this isn't, uh, you know, mop top it's stuff. It's just like politics. It has nothing to do with wearing a mask or not wearing a mask and having your freedom infringed upon. It's just the context and the, uh, you know, set and setting mm -hmm. of thing i was as soon as i heard i mean i was into dylan in the just the guitar voice days mm -hmm. when i was a kid i must have got into the second album <clears throat> but when i you know hearing i remember mr tambourine man when i first heard that i just i was just completely floored 
and probably with that a thousand times in a row. Mm-hmm. Before we continue with music and Blondie, you mentioned politics, uh, which is how we we met. We were we're both active <laughs> uh, man- yeah, maniacs well, on Twitter. Uh, yeah, Twitter is fucking nuts. Yeah, and uh, we met. We, I got the opportunity to meet you and Debbie. You guys were doing a town hall thing a few years ago before COVID, and uh, uh, got to chat with you. And I, I still, I, I still remember talking with you. And then you turn to Debbie and you go, hey, "This is Andy. He's really cool. He hates Trump too." And that's kind of how we met. What do you, what do you make quickly? What do you make about what's where? Are you, where are you today with the political opinions versus few, just a few short years ago? It's astonishing what's going on now, you know? I mean, okay, my kids, like two days ago, my daughter and her boyfriend found uh, one of 1,000 copy deluxe edition of Barry Goldwater's photography. So it, so I was floored because it's nice, you know? And famously, there's a, famously, there's a letter from JFK to Barry Goldwater saying, what, you should stick to your chosen field, which is photography, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. And I had to explain what Barry Goldwater was mm-hmm. somewhat my daughter. And you know, the obvious all of this stuff, you know, him and what William F. Buckley, all all these guys are relatively level headed, no matter how extreme their insane views were at the time. Right. You compare current crap of lunatics it's, it's, just, it's, it's just a joke so for me i i don't get too outraged by the whole stuff because it's so funny it's just absurd i know you know whether or not america falls down in some deep abyss of crazy you know neo-fascism i maybe it'll be less funny but i i don't know i think there's enough people on both sides, you know, on the other side at this point. It's, but it's, it's nuts. The whole fucking thing. I just, you know, I see everybody really was distrustful of Hillary. That was a major thing, you know. She just, she, uh, I mean, Debbie said she should have just fucking gone on TV and cried. You know, and people would have appreciated that, you know, instead of being so performatively cheerful. Yeah. Didn't she do that a little bit? Like, I want to say Iowa or New Hampshire. She did get teary about something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was almost like it's like was. Yeah, I I totally look, I'm a huge Hillary uh, fan and supporter and I'm in many ways still still with her. But. And I think she would have been an amazing president, but I am very aware and uh, and I get the criticisms uh, from a interpersonal kind of thing that you're speaking to where she just could not, unlike her husband, she could not catch on, which is what a politician needs to, to do, you know? Yeah. And because, no, yeah. because of that, she's, you know, he, 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 Trump became president. Yep. That's, it's nuts. The whole thing is nuts. All these fucking people now are nuts yeah your daughter and my daughter i think around the same age 19 17 17 is she political like does she care about any of this stuff or not terribly i find no none of them they're all into their social world yeah so i want to ask you when you uh uh when you when you saw and heard debbie for the first time this is when you guys weren't in in a band together yet Uh, i think she maybe she was with the 
stilettos. Okay. What went through your brain? Did you have like a vision in that moment? Like, oh my God, this woman's amazing. We got to start a band together. I was just very taken with her. I thought she was great and attractive and pretty much what everybody saw later down the line. But I was, it was just early on. So it was that, uh, yeah, she was, I, yeah, I was pretty smitten with her, I guess. And so were you more smitten as a dude or were you more smitten like we can create an amazing band together? I think the band's stuff was a little secondary, but it was really part of, I mean, it was the whole music thing was well established at that point, And I was really interested in it. I was always striving to get something going even though there, it was kind of undefined mm-hmm. what something might be at that point. It was just sort of nebulous, um, just be able to do music. I don't even think, I don't even think I thought about recording or any of that stuff that early on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for the, for the, for the kids, you know, the young kids out there listening, I, I just got to tell you that back in the seventies and even to this day, I mean, Debbie Harry is one of the most beautiful women that's ever graced this earth. And so, uh, and just musically, when she came around, she was doing stuff that nobody else was doing, at least on a commercial level. So it was like this force of nature. And so I'm imagining when you saw her, you know, uh, was most guys always look at someone and be like, oh my God. Did you have that moment of like, I'm so confident, I'm going to go after her and I'm going to get her? Or were you like, she's never going to pay me five seconds of attention? <laughs> she's so awesome. Um- no, yeah, a little bit of both, probably. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I don't know if I was over the years. I've discovered it can't, you know, if you're polite to somebody and approach them, it can't hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, the worst that's going to happen is tell you to fuck off. So, <laughs> right. I mean, well, yeah, die. rejection is like you know, some most guys hate rejection, but which stops them from making that move but uh you had to have been a pretty confident guy back then to well, we all we all knew each other in the scene so there was inter relation between everybody and i so i just you know signed up for the band mm-hmm. shortly seeing them for the first time and when you guys first got together and and formed the band uh did, did you know that something amazing was happening or did it take it, did it take time for you to sort of get to that point of, wow, there's something really unique here? Or was it, what, did you get that from the get-go? You no, know, it was kind of, no, it was a struggle for quite a number of years. And then quickly, the, there was a curve to it that went, you know, I guess kind of through the slight elevation then suddenly went mm-hmm. very quickly upwards. You know, there's your first album, Blondie. There's a I read something that the, uh, this guy Ken Tucker, in 1977, Rolling Stone, he he wrote a oh, piece yeah. and he said all the songs quote work on at least two levels as peppy but rough pop, and as distant artless avant rock. And he also noted that Harry Debbie Harry performed with quote utter aplomb and involvement throughout, even when she's portraying a character consummately obnoxious and spaced out there is a wink of awareness that is comforting and amusing yet never condescending and then he said about her 
she was the uh, she she's the possessor of a bombshell zombie's voice that can sound dreamily seductive, seductive and woodenly mansonite within the same. So I read this. I was like, what the fuck is he talking about? Like these, well, you ever think no, like these nice. kids? Well, but it's like so. It. He seems to me like I don't know. Critics well, to me are in general like they they sometimes get it. A, they can't get out of their own see, way. There's a tendency back then amongst the music writers to get very involved in themselves. You know, I mean, Lester Bangs may be the uh, right. You know, main character in that kind of a whatever you want to call it but you know and, and it, it, our relationship with the music press it's different now you know it's so it's completely different because everything is based on physically seeing the artists on in social media whatever the fuck it is internet streaming uh, blah 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 there's it's less ponderous and less these it's less of room you know mm-hmm. i mean it's great i mean for me all the great the criticism i really enjoy is film criticism like you know a.o scott is just a fucking genius uh all those guys but yeah that, that kind of that we saw kind of sunset on that very verbose rock yeah, but i mean criticism. like woodenly mansonite i mean when he in 1977 Again, i mean i have charles manson's record which I used to listen to. And it's very funny because it's kind of wholesome in a weird way. You know, it's like, well, his, he's, got a song, he's got a song called Anywhere I Hang My Hat is Home, which sounds like the fucking Carpenters or something, you know? It's just weird. Well, that one song that, the, the one that everybody always plays over and over again, the, the, uh, the, the, the what's, I forget the name of it, but like, it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. He, yeah, he totally should have stuck to music. I think he might have been more successful than his other course yeah. vocation but yeah. but I, I don't i just think like you know it was not that long after the manson murder so i'm not sure i understand like the woodenly mansonite reference i don't know i mean like, maybe there could have been other ways to express what he was thinking in my opinion i don't know it just seems a little harsh but uh so uh, when you are also a, a co-writer of a lot of the great blondie songs yeah. what is your process when, when do you start with lyrics? Did you do you start with music? Like, how does it form? For I, you? A lot of, I would always be about recording. I would always have tape recorders that I would work with because I don't write. I never learned to read and write music. I have a lot of big holes in my musical development. Like our keyboard player Matt is a you know reads just reads mm-hmm. fluently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I mean, I wish I had spent time doing that stuff, but. It's, I never did it, so I would always be dealing with tape recording and multi, mm-hmm. multi, multi-track tapes, four tracks, especially a lot of the early stuff was from a TAC four track, which is a very specific animal. Mm-hmm. And did you ever have any of these moments, like any of these like Neil Young moments, where you see something important and then you wander into the woods and come out in twenty minutes with Ohio? <laughs> no, it was just more about melodies. I would get some little melody in my head i mean so many you know there's so much stuff gets lost over the years because i just am too lazy or not near a tape recorder mm-hmm. but there's enough of it would i would be able to put down mm-hmm. in some or it would be a little bit of translation from what's in my head to what 
goes on the tape, but it would happen. You know, the, the songwriting process to me is, always seems so fascinating because, you know, everybody has a different process and uh, sometimes you have a partner or you write lyrics, they write music, or sometimes you do both. But I loved watching the Beatles documentary uh, where you literally see these geniuses in a room working through like what have become iconic songs and just to see the birth of like the from the concept to maybe the first verse or just like dummy words you know like yeah. when mccartney's talking about the, like yesterday I think he, he called it something else instead of uh but it had to write a number of syllables you know but how that all comes together when you're a musician is fascinating to me and uh, but no one seems to have like the same process. It all comes so differently to people. Yeah. We, um, you know, I would get some little thing on tape. I mean, a lot of the earlier stuff was just done sitting around with a guitar with Debbie. But usually I would lay something down and she would then proceed to work on it and would embellish mm -hmm. what she would to have her own takes on the melodies. Mm-hmm. You guys had, uh, you did six albums in six years. You sold 40 million records. Like what's even more fascinating to me is like you guys reunited after you broke up in 82, but you reunited in 97. You had a number one single in, in the UK with Maria, which I think was one of the best songs you guys ever did. Oh, it's that talent that, that never goes away, right? Even when bands break up, they get, it's like, when you got back together, was it just like, did it just almost seem like you just picked up where you left off? Uh, gee, I don't know. You know, I mean, yeah, certain aspects of it probably were similar. Maybe it's. I mean, it's already so fucking long ago. The re the re up right. of the band was ninety nine or whatever. It's amazing. I mean, it blows my mind that two thousand and three was twenty years ago. Yeah, at this point, it's crazy. What What was the root of the breakup in eighty two? Oh, just everything. Just drugs. Me getting sick. Mm -hmm. uh, Bad management, bad accounting, just, you know, the usual, very typical showbiz story of being screwed over. Mm -hmm. I wanted to backtrack for a second about Bob Gruen uh, when we were talking about Debbie. I had asked him who he thinks over all the years that he was taking photos, who who was most photogenic. And uh, he was like, yeah, like, Debbie Harry. Debbie Harry can't take a bad picture of Debbie Harry. Is it correct to say that you guys kind of really burst when Call Me was in American Gigolo? Was that like a seminal moment for the band? Uh, that was the biggest song, but we had no, I mean, the real breakout stuff was earlier in Europe, uh, like Denis Denis, the cover of the Randy's and Randy and the Rainbow song, mm -hmm. just swept all around Europe. And then, you know, Heart of Glass, too. There were a lot of those moments. Mm -hmm. Call Me was the biggest song, though. Was it a surprise when the movie people came to you and said, uh, we want you to be a part of this and write some stuff for them? Oh, you know, it was a very funky, artistic le level, you know. Uh, you know, Paul Schrader and Gear and uh, Marauder later approached us, you know, we had, initially we remember hanging out with Richard and taking him to 48th street to buy a guitar and Schrader. And we, you know, we just went to a, 
hotel room and watched the cut of the movie on a little funky old TV. Yeah. And had it, so how did that song come to be in that film? Did it take a while for you to come up with? Giorgio. They, they had got mm, Giorgio mm-hmm. aligned with the movie. And I, I've heard over the years that, I don't know, maybe that there were some other candidates, maybe Stevie Nicks or this one or that one, but we wound up doing it. And, you know, it was a nice experience. And Giorgio is great character. Mm. There's some, you know, music in and movies, like there are some films where the the soundtrack and the music is as important as the film itself, as the content, the acting, the cinematography. You know, Martin Scorsese is a genius when it comes to pairing yeah. music to film. It's hard. I'm sorry, go ahead. Scorsese is like mining your memories. He's doing that stuff of all that nostalgia aspect. You know, when you see Goodfellas and it's got all those songs that you grew sure. up with. Layla. Mm-hmm. All clicking these beats, you know? Yeah. But it's... I, I'm a real critic of film scoring these days because I think it's overdone. And I've seen... I see so many movies, so many films where the soundtrack becomes like a laugh track mm. where it's just to steer you into into having certain emotions. You know, if you look at something like No Country for Old Men, which has almost fucking, has zero soundtrack music whatsoever, you know, it's so brilliant. I, I, you know, I grew up on movie soundtracks before I was into pop music. I used to, I was listening to Lawrence of Arabia and Irma Deuce and all this stuff. West Side Story, of course, was all very formative to me. And it's weird, I'm, I, it's not, hasn't quite progressed, you know, the way I would like it to, mm. you know, you know, Rhoda, all of, all of Fellini stuff is just so genius. Mm. Well, it's hard to imagine American Gigolo without that song. It is such yeah. a, uh, inextricably, it's so inextricably tied to everything about the film and the zeitgeist of that era and the Armani clothes yeah. and just, and it's well, that's it, what the, the clothes and the color palette of the clothes mm-hmm. is what that color me color me or color line is about. I mean, Debbie was very inspired by the that stuff. You know, that was before anybody knew who Al Armani was. Yeah, no, it, it's it, it's groundbreaking on so many levels. But it's just it, it's always been fascinating to me how someone can come up with something that is such a perfect fit. Like that you have that kind of talent to go. Someone says, go away and bring back a song that's going to work in this movie. And it's, well, it, it, lot, becomes... it, was on, it was a lot on Giorgio. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was certainly equal parts, Giorgio and mm-hmm. Debbie. And so th- th- you guys got, you, you put out uh, uh, Heart of Glass, which kind of has like a disco-y little thing to it. I was wondering what, because you came out at the same time that disco uh, was the rage, and I'm wondering what your thoughts were on that period and that kind of music. And totally like disco music. I had no problems with mm-hmm. disco music. So you weren't I stepping liked... on all the records. Oh no, I, disco music was great. It's just part of R and B to me. Mm-hmm. It was such. There was such great, you know, stuff coming out out of the disco world. I was always totally into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I love hearing, like Paul McCartney often talks, he gives backstories to certain songs, which I, I think he did a book not too long ago 
a couple of years ago, perhaps that you know he goes into uh, some of their major songs and and just gives a little genesis of where they come from. I don't know if you have that uh, uh, kind of thing with with uh, Blondie, where how certain songs took on certain meaning or. Uh, there's an interesting enough story. I know certainly the, the first, there is a great story about uh, In the Flesh and Ex-Offender as sort of being the the launch in a way of the band uh, based on a mistake. But if you want to speak to that for a second, I'd love, I'd love to hear that. Well, Ex-Offender was about um, Gary's, our original members, Gary Valentine's situation with his... Uh, girlfriend where he had you know he was being pursued by this girl's parents after he came of age and he was you know long long story and it's better i i hesitate to get into it too much but he had trouble basically because of a youthful romance mm -hmm. so that was the inspiration for ex ex offender and then it was a mis there was a, sh a TV show. I don't, um, I don't. Okay, yeah, no, I, I don't. Over the years, I used to buy into that story, but at this point, the last fifteen years, I've always thought that Molly Meldrum, who was a genius, present TV host. He was the Australian Dick Clark. He, uh, I just think he knew what he was doing, and he knew what the market was for the song. So the story that it was a mistake. It was the B side was played by mistake is a good story, but I don't know if I buy it. Mm -hmm. well, is... I read that you you said quote I, I uh, over the years I've thought they probably played both things but liked one better. That's all. Maybe that too. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Molly's a very smart guy. Mm -hmm. He's a TV presenter down there. So when Parallel Lines, the third album came out, which just that was like a, it exploded. Uh, what was that like? I mean, I always wonder, like, when a band puts something out, uh, did you know that that album was that good and was going to be that well received and really change the course uh, of the band's trajectory? The album was floating around on the charts for six months. For six months before Heart of Glass was released, mm -hmm. you know, there wasn't a lot of indication. The only, the only song I was really positive was going to be a hit was tied as high mm. out of everything interesting why because i had i had the original which is genius uh you know dick holt and i mean and you know the paragons and uh i just knew if we could pull off a successful version of it it would be it would click with people and it, it, the style that you guys chose to record that in, like that seems really specific, but also kind of risky. The Titus High? Yeah. 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 I mean, it was just, I don't, you know, uh, as far as being risky, I just always did stuff that I liked. And right. we just, did, we always did stuff we liked. The mariachi stuff. I've always been into roots and world music. And that was just, an extension of that, uh, my affinity for that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, what I'm just going to throw out names, so, uh, so, uh, names of songs, and if there's a, an interesting story that you want to share, by all means, uh, uh, dreaming. 
big hit. Oh, Droll Dreaming is very much inspired by Dancing Queen by ABBA. Yeah, interesting. It's da, da, uh -huh. da, 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 Dancing Queen. It's got that tiny little dreaming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's that. I mean, I always loved ABBA. They were great. Mm -hmm. uh, Sunday Girl. Sunday Girl is in, uh, again, started out as more of like a roots, almost Calypso Afro Caribe thing and then evolved into this rock song mm -hmm. and uh, vaguely about our cat who ran away so i was, I was gonna ask you like who is there a girl that it's but so not, and you're telling me it's about a cat well it's it's all you know it's a little autobiographical about debbie somewhat uh -huh. mm -hmm. but it's also about sunday man we had, debbie had a cat named sunday man interesting he, he, he ran away when we were on tour it was very tragic mm -hmm. uh one of my favorites is rip her to shreds uh okay. miss groupie supreme i'm wondering if there was a real miss groupie supreme no it's kind of a conglomerate of people i don't think it was anybody specific it's very much waiting for my man reference that song and then there's a great uh a great title let alone the song uh die young stay pretty oh yeah well yeah, that was like all semi reggae hard, hard reggae Thing early on, uh, you know, it was just going along with the sentiment. That was a catchphrase at the time. Mm -hmm. And there's two two monster hits uh, that have just been branded into my brain over the years, like millions and millions of people, uh, one way or another, and hanging on the telephone, which is to me one of your best songs. That song is truly amazing. Yeah, well, hanging on the telephone is a cover. Most people don't get that it's a cover of the Nerves by Telephone. And I recommend everybody listen to the original, which is not as big and aggressive. It's a little more toned down and Beatlesque. Mm -hmm. It's really great track, though. And uh, one way or another, one way or another is just what it is. That was just developed in the studio. Uh, I think it's Nigel a writer on that. I can't remember who is a writer on that. I, th I think it's Nigel. Mm-hmm. Is there a story to, I'm going to get you, get you, get was there... it, was, it was a little bit about Debbie being stalked by some guy early on when we first met. Not, not you. No, no, she had some stalker boyfriend from well, New Jersey or something. Oh, I did read that once. Yeah, I read that. Uh, Fade Away and Radiate, great song. Fade Away and Radiate was about Debbie falling asleep with the TV on, which I suspect she still does at this point. No, put me in that category too. Who doesn't do that, right? In in two in two thousand six, uh, you guys were inducted uh, into the Hall of Fame. Did that? I mean, I've listened to so many performers over the years, and there are people that are like, oh my god, that was the greatest uh, accolade ever. And then there's there are performers that are like, I don't give a shit about that stuff. Like, where yeah, where okay. were you guys when that happened? Is, <laughs> is that a big deal? I mean, at the risk of sounding like this is a dumb question, but was that a big deal for the band? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, mostly by extension of other people thinking it was a big deal. And I frequently said I got congratulated more for that than I did for having children. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, the Hall of Fame is a little skewed, the whole thing. It shouldn't be called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It should be called the Popular Music Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, it's the museum itself is fucking great. And most people are great. But 
there's just something weird about the whole setup. You know, you having to have every year having to have people that are not voted for, so they're an out group is really weird. I mean, I you know, I, I like to be able to vote every year. It's nice they send you the thing. Mm-hmm. I had it around here, but I, I got to mail it off yet. It, it was it was it Dolly Parton recently who like refused to participate. But mainly for the reasons you were just talking about. The year we were, the year we were inducted, the Sex Pistols just wrote a letter said "fuck off" and you know, shocking. <laughs> go. Yeah, we don't care. Uh huh. And and there was some, you know, uh, stop me if I'm touching on a sore spot here, but there was some some drama when you guys were inducted when uh, two of your bandmates, uh, Frank. That was a pretty awkward moment. Yeah, yeah. Frankie decided it was a good idea to complain about but i mean i hadn't heard from the guy in 20 years except in court so it was just you know if he had called me up i might have considered right yeah no it was it was a it was one of those like kanye taylor swift kind of moments yeah 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 no i you know i mean it kind of eclipsed the sex pistols being rude mm-hmm. which was kind of great i mean you know there's no bad publicity as they say yeah who as a guitarist who are the guitarists that you uh, either uh, felt were most influential on you, or that you just as a as someone who plays guitar looks at them and is like, "Wow, they are." Beyond. Well, all the old guys, Hendrix. I only saw Hendrix the one time at Woodstock, but I was always a huge, huge Hendrix fan. Stuff is just it still holds up. It's so no, genius. And I'm a huge. I mean, Hendrix was my teenage years was yeah. also hugely about Hendrix and still is. Uh, John Fahey, you know who John Fahey is? No. He's a, yeah, I mean, F-A-H-E-Y, John Fahey is, and he was a, it's all, I don't know, folk, blues-based, acoustic guitars, mm-hmm. slide guitars, just mm-hmm. solo guitar music, genius, uh, big influence. Mike Bloomfield, you know who Mike Bloomfield was? Mm-hmm. Played with uh, Butterfield, Paul Butterfield, and uh-huh. played with Dylan, mm-hmm. also. In that same period, that the folky, folky electric crossover period, mm-hmm. there's you know there's a lot of people mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. And what about but more I, more contemporary? Like the are there people I, I, today? I don't, I don't even pay attention to a lot of music ever. I mean, like you know, something like Clem, our drummer, knows every fucking person in every band that ever mm-hmm. ever existed, and I'm just like so not like that. I'm so. You know, I know, I know, you know, a basic core of stuff, and I hear a lot of great music all the time. But frequently, it'll be some. I'll hear just like a couple of bars of something on some cat video that I'm looking at, and then I'll go, "Oh wait, what is that?" And then I, you know, find some track that I like, or I'll see some. I hear something in a movie or a you know TV show that I think is great, and then I'll pick it, pick up on it like that. So stuff that comes in front of my face is how I get new music. I'm not like actively running around looking for new bands because there's so much stuff now. It's just fucking nuts. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the music today? I mean, I, I'm like a, my, my daughter, like we have a house upstate and we, we drive two hours up, two hours back, you know, and then she would always ask me, uh, can I play my music? And sometimes I literally wanted to drive the car off the road and slam into a tree because it was so awful. I like everything. I don't know what she's listening to, but I like a lot of stuff. Uh, I just, 
I was just watching this Bill Burr. Mm-hmm. I love Bill Burr. I Comedian. love Bill Burr. <laughs> and I I was just watching some bit he something he did with a bunch of comedians with like a you know little showcase of a bunch of his buddies. And this guy, one of them, this guy did a version very unmusical. I mean, he wasn't a good singer, but they had a band. He did a version of Teenage Dream, Katy Perry's Teenage Dream. And, and it's such a great song. I mean, this fucking guy who can't sing, and it's just such a great song, you know? And you, I, I can't get around that stuff. And there's a lot of, you know, I have the, that major laser track, uh, Lean On. Do you know Lean On? Uh, that, you know, what's his name? Oh, the guy, Diplo. Diplo and Major Laser. That track I just listened to a billion times. It's just so good. I mean, that's a bunch of years ago already. Mm-hmm. But there's I a lot of stuff that I really like. I like Cardi. I like a lot of the hip hop stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's well, that's a revelation. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, look, it, there's there's good quality music out today, but then, you know, uh, I, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s and even 80s, and it's like, uh, it's hard. I guess, like, I don't want to be one of those people that when they watched Elvis back in the 50s were like, no, you can't. That guy is no good, and he's this, and he's that. Yeah, so, no, no, it's just you know, great like, music all the time. It's always yeah. great stuff. My comment on that is there was always crap, but people only remember the good stuff. Right. You know? So back, back to Blondie for a second. <laughs> what is your... Do you have songs that you guys did uh, that stands out? Like, it's this couple of songs... And then there's everything else. Like, what what is your favorite Blondie material? It's kind of not like that, you know. I mean, it all. I just, you know, we I, we just did a podcast with Niall just recently, just the other day, and he played a bunch of tracks in the background, and he played this one track of ours called "Island of Lost Souls." And now I can't get it out of my fucking head. But it's not like I have a favorite. They're all just like movements of a, of a larger piece, mm-hmm. you know. Like, I mean, some things that were successful and clever, I like, uh, you know, we're very proud of Rapture and that we were accepted by the hip hop community, mm-hmm. you know, and Die to Die is a great thing. John Holt mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it's just, I, I it was a terrific experience. And I can't, you know, Mike Chapman, where I was working with our producer, Mike Chapman, was just very fortuitous and he was great. He was like the, you know, George Martin mm-hmm. Blondie. A lot of people refer to Rapture as like the first hip hop song. What's your take on that? We'd heard Rapper's Delight and there's, I'd heard a few things. And then Freddie took us up to this event in the South Bronx and 77 and it was just very eye-opening and exciting and it just seemed like a no-brainer to mm. reference it now yeah, well very very pioneering the, the music business has changed so much over the years i'm curious to know from your perspective how, if you if you have an opinion on either side how has it changed in a way that's been really advantageous and beneficial for younger performers coming up and how has it really damaged the process and hurt the process well, the fact that you can just get your music out so easily, just sticking stuff on YouTube, but then it's it's just a drop in a vast ocean of stuff. 
the touring process is so much easier now than it used to be. I mean, it was really, you know, it was back in the 70s and 80s. It was very Wild West. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, you got all that Live Nation stuff and all this. It's, it's just a whole different thing. I, uh, but there's a, there's a way to connect. You know, I see a lot of younger bands on social media and Instagram, whatever, connecting with groups of fans and making, making, developing their own audiences. That's a, that's a good thing. And if, you know, if you're good and you have something to offer, it's going to rise to the surface to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. How do you think it would have been if Blondie hit the scene today? I don't fucking know, you know. Uh, it would just have to be reconfigured. It would be something different mm -hmm. with or electronica or whatever. I, I don't exactly know what it would be now. I mean, I see like my daughter has friends her age, you know, 17 year olds doing a band, you know, and I follow their antics. Mm -hmm. so. I want to talk in our remaining couple of minutes. I want to talk, talk to you about your photography. You've, you did two books, uh, you know, me, Blondie, negative me, Blondie in the advent of punk point of view, me, New York City in the punk scene. Uh, you mentioned you have a, a, a third coming out, a, a, third, a third, a third photography book, not the memoir. Yeah, our, our adventures with Giger mm -hmm. is coming out on April 18th. So, uh, oh, damn, I'm, I'm blanking on the publisher, but on Titan, mm -hmm. Titan book. So, and what what is what do you what's your what turns you on the most when you're holding a camera? What are you looking to shoot the most, or does it always just change? Lots of stuff. Yeah, it's changing, but well, you know, I just like the aspect of composition, and I like the aspect of time travel, of you know, capturing these moments. It's I love looking at old photography. Mm -hmm. And you shoot a lot in black and white. Yeah, I just I use my phone now. The phone is great. I'm it's it's a you know it's a great. I'm very forward about everybody having a camera. Mm -hmm. I think it's terrific on many levels. You know, a lot of great stuff is captured. People that are not photographers still will come up with that one great image. That's just a fantastic thing. People are able to oversee stuff. You know, like all these police actions and stuff. All that mm -hmm. stuff would be non-existent if people weren't you know all holding video cameras do you think it's uh all the opportunities people have with their iphone with filters and like to make photographs that may not necessarily be terribly authentic in what they're well i don't i don't go with that shit i just i mean i tweak you know a little bit of uh, mm -hmm. contrast uh saturation and stuff like that but i don't i don't i never deal with that shit and for, as a as a as a photographer, you you feel like the iPhone is as good as any these days. Good camera, yeah, oh. sure, oh. good camera. Do you think kids yeah. are missing out on something when they don't have their own little brownies to go, and then go in a dark yeah, room maybe, and develop? Maybe I mean you, have, <clears> you, know, you don't. Nobody's learning about f stops and ISO and uh, film speed and all that all that stuff. You know, mm -hmm. it's just it's, some of that is getting lost in the shuffle in the automatic nature of things now but i guess but that's bound to go like that i mean even the you know the digital cameras i use i just sometimes will just stick them on automatic and just let them figure it out themselves 
Does your uh, daughter uh, uh, has has the gene, the gene pool uh, given her any musical or or photographic uh, interest or, she, and or talent? Art. The younger daughter identifies as an artist mm -hmm. completely. Does writing mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. whole is she's probably you know she's gonna probably go to art school mm -hmm. coming up. That's cool. Well, Chris, you've been incredibly generous with your time. This has been uh, fascinating. Uh, there's so much to talk about. I literally could have sat here for, for six I hours. Know, I don't know what else to think, I, you know, about stuff. I don't know what's, I'm hoping for the best for America. Yeah, so no, we, 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 you should come back again. We can have, we can talk about things that may not necessarily be musical. But uh, I did also want to point out, you're not only generous with your time today, uh, I made a documentary, as you know, about my late wife, Adrian Shelley, and uh, there's a song, I, we, we have dreaming in the song, because it's a, a scene where Adrian bursts onto the scene in the early 90s, and, I, and when, I put the, when we were editing and put the footage together, all I heard was boom, 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 it's just like throwing her out into the world, and you were very nice. generous and supportive of the film and the song, and it's hard for me to imagine the film I made without that song in it. So I, I want to thank you again for that. And people should know that you're a generous guy. So I'm a good Thanks. guy. So hopefully you'll come back again and, uh, and, and we can talk some more. And maybe I'll see All you wandering right. around the village. Yeah, I'm here. Thanks, right. man. Take care. That's episode 48. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroyd. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langale for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio. And a big thank you again to our guest, Chris Stein. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>